0: All right, Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. Rain's coming down, so this is on you guys. You got to uh, you got to hang with me. All right, you got to hang with me. You got to you got to stick with me in this. I uh, always a challenge whenever this happens, but that's all right. So Luke chapter four. Uh, we're continuing our way through the book of Luke. Uh, the the good doctor and uh, historian walking us through the story of. Uh, the story of Jesus, picking up where we left off last week, the boring but very insightful genealogy of Jesus with all those names, uh, which will make for a perfect transition for us into today's text. Uh, and we'll get there here in in just a minute. Uh, but before we, we get there, I got to tell you. So uh, this morning I did something that I've probably only done, I don't know, four or five, six times uh, in the time that I've been pastor here at. Uh, Providence um, and it always makes me nervous when this happens, but It is what it is. We got we got to go with it, but uh, I I basically completely rewrote my sermon this morning Uh, Completely went in a in a totally different direction than I thought we were going to go this morning about 730 I was getting myself ready and I realized okay, this is not This is not where God wants us to go this morning. So we got to go in a different direction So I don't know who you are but somebody here in this room, the Holy Spirit wants to have a word. So I hope that you are here and you are ready to uh, listen. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, I, I really I really am. Uh, re- really did kind of rewrite this and go in a different direction, but I'll tell you this much. Uh, my goal, my hope is that I never have to preach a sermon that the, the Holy Spirit hasn't had a word with me first before he has a word with us. Uh, And this morning even though it is a a little bit last minute is no exception. So uh, Luke chapter 4 we'll see how this goes. Uh, And this morning here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you how to never sin again. Y'all on board? You ready for that? I'm going to teach you how to never sin again. And I'm not kidding. Not completely, I'm not kidding, I, I, I know the secret, and it's not even a secret, it's, it's written in plain sight for us here in our text today, it's, it's, it's right here in front of us, this is not a deep hidden secret that you need a spiritual guru for, uh, you do not need to be able to meditate in a certain way for a certain amount of time, you do not need to be on psychedelic drugs, you do not need anything like that in order to get where we are going this morning. This is not a trick of the mind that I can get you to develop this remarkable mindset mindset and and uh, and, and kind of shift everything. It's, it's not that. I've been listening to some uh, some books this month trying to reset my mind a little bit when it comes to working out and fitness and, and eating right and all those kind of things. And these things all have great tips, but I can't really figure out how to implement all of them into my life because they're giving me tips how to complete an Ironman, and I'm trying to figure out how not to eat a donut. And those two things don't always like like they don't apply directly to each other. Uh, the mindset needed is not exactly the same uh, thing. So what I'm going to teach you this morning is not that. I'm not giving you this like Iron Man level secret and you're trying to figure out, hey, I just need to like not yell at my kids today. Uh, that's, not, that's not what we're doing. This, this, is a strat- this, this isn't a strategy where if you do this, you will get this result. It looks and it feels Very different. So let's look in chapter 4 of the book of Luke. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit. And then I'm going to take a step back and remind us of what we saw last week. And see how this all plays together. This is not coming out of a vacuum and uh, just kind of popping out there. How we typically read it. It flows with what Luke is trying to do. So Luke chapter 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. All right, let's stop right there for just a second, and then we'll come back. We're going to read this whole passage again here in just a second uh, that we're going to look at this morning. So, when 40 days was up, he was hungry. Thanks for the obvious note here, Luke. I I don't think you have to say that. That's a little bit redundant. Those things are there. I appreciate the insight. Uh, But I, I didn't really need to know that. My assumption is after 40 days of not eating that Jesus would indeed be hungry. But this note is important for us to consider and it will kind of frame a little bit of what the rest of the text is going to show us. We'll get back to that here in just a minute. But before that, let's remember why we're here. Jesus has been baptized Uh, and then by by John the Baptist, and then Luke gives us that long genealogy that ended with Adam last week. Do you guys remember this? Adam that that was noted as the son of God, the way that it was explained by Luke. And so last week we talked about how Jesus was the second Adam, the one that came to fulfill what, what Adam should have done, what he was meant to point us toward, but also to do what Adam could not and did not do, what he ultimately failed at. We also talked about the baptism and the particular emphasis on on Jesus as the Son of God and how Adam was referred to as the Son of God. And now we have this account of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the desert for a time of fasting uh, and, and, and as we'll see here, a time of trial. And Luke starts out by describing this time in in the desert as lasting for 40 days. Now, a casual observer of Scripture with just a little bit of Old Testament background doesn't have to look very far for echoes of what is happening here and what we are being pointed to. In many ways, what we're about to read will have parallels to what Israel endured in the, their desert wandering for 40 years. And we are meant to kind of draw some of these conclusions. We are meant to kind of see some of these things. And if that wasn't explicit enough, there's a pretty clear through line from Jesus as the Son of God to Adam. And now the hint of Israel, which in Exodus is called you guessed it, Israel is called the Son of God. Listen to this, uh, this verse. I actually got this verse this week from uh, David Rosser. He sent me a, a text and he said, hey, look, this is, this is great how all of this plays out, how all of this is, is there because, because this is also how Israel is referred and, and continue to kind of draw out some of this stuff. And I said, man, that's perfect. That's exactly right. And then that plays right into exactly what is happening here in Luke chapter 4. Listen to this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So we have this this kind of like through line here, right? Jesus, Adam, Israel, all referred to as sons of God. Adam and Israel, we we, we know what happens uh, with them. In the garden, Adam falls. In the desert, Israel fell. And now we're going to see what Jesus does as he goes out into the desert. Spoiler, he doesn't fall. Uh, he does not uh, give to this, the temptation and sin. But that may not be the most interesting part of our text this morning. It's the most important part, but it may not be the most interesting part. And we'll see that here in just a second. So, so first back to Luke telling us that he, uh, that he was hungry. So let me ask you a question. If you're hungry and someone offers you food to eat, is it a sin for you to eat it? No, it's not. If you're hungry and somebody says, here's some bread you haven't eaten in a long time, would you like to eat this? And you eat it, of course it's not. Yet that's what's about to happen, and it's what frames all of Jesus' temptation. You see, Jesus' fast was over. This wasn't a matter of Jesus was trying to keep the rules for 40 days and Satan was trying to get Jesus to break the rules. That's not, it's not what's going on here. For so long, that's how I've understood this passage is this is Jesus, the rule keeper, and we need to be, like Jesus, good rule keepers. And so Jesus is trying to be a good rule keeper and not break the fast, not eat any of this bread. But the fast is over. Whatever Satan is about to do, it isn't about trying to get Jesus to break the fast and break the rules. This isn't about eating. It's about something else entirely. So let's keep reading and see if we can figure out what it is. I'm going to read this, this whole thing and, and show you what this looks like. This is much shorter in the book of Luke than it is in the book of Matthew. We've seen that a couple of times already. Uh, and, and that will continue several different times during this book. So Luke chapter 4 verse 3. yours. There's all kinds of theology mess we could get into in there that we're not going to get into this morning. Is Satan lying? Does really Satan have this kind of authority and this power? We're not going to get into all that, but it's, a, it's pretty interesting debates that are out there. But either way, he's making this offer to, uh, to Jesus. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So again, Luke's teaching here is the, the, the shorter version of what Matthew has out there. Uh, Satan comes to Jesus after his baptism, his first big step of, uh, of, of public ministry, and Satan sees an opportunity. He offers Jesus some bread, and he says, here is this bread, at least sort of. If he had just offered bread, then this probably is kind of a, a, a moot point. Jesus could have just eaten the bread, and it would have been, it would have been fine. Jesus would have put some honey butter on it, and it would have been like being, like, like, like being at a at Texas roadhouse, and it all would have been good. Jesus would have eaten that, and we would have moved on. But what Satan asked for Jesus was not to, turn, was not to, uh, to just eat some bread. It was to turn the stones into bread, to turn the, the rocks into the, uh, the rolls he could eat. And not only that, he offers the inherent challenge at the front of it. If you're the Son of God, then do This. That little phrase at the front is what turns up the dial on this particular temptation and really is kind of the heart of the temptation. You see, this is how Satan works. He takes a bit of a half truth and then will manipulate it for us. Satan isn't afraid of using truth for his own ends, at least half truths. He loves those. He can use those for his agenda all day long. Full truth is a problem for him, but half truth is an opportunity. So Jesus, uh, all Jesus has to do is affirm this reality that is right in front of him, this ready-made truth, if you're the Son of God. Now, again, I've always kind of understood that to be a bit of a challenge. If you're really the Son of God, then do a miracle. Make it happen. Prove to me that that's really who you are. But the more I study this, the more I think that's not what is happening here. I don't think what he's saying is prove to me the, the Son of God. I think... The son of God by what you can do. I think what he's saying is prove to me you're the son of God because you've got a father who's going to care for you. So what he's saying is if you're the son of God, then surely your father is going to take care of you. Implication, if you're not taken care of, you must not be the son of God because what father wouldn't take care of his son? He's basically asking this, if you're the son of God, then what are you doing walking around a desert starving to death? What kind of father treats their son this way? It's accusatory. It's not it's not are you the son of God? Prove it. It's are you the son of God? How can this be happening to you? There's no way that this should be happening. Jesus, you should rectify this situation. Your father has not shown up for you in your time of need. Your fast is over. Go ahead and eat some bread, but yet you still have no food to eat. Jesus, you need to rectify this situation. Take it into your own hands. Make your own provision. After all, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you can do this. Jesus, you should do that because your father, he doesn't have as much faith in you as I do. If your father won't do it for you, you should just do it yourself. And my goodness, we know this temptation well, don't we? What am I doing, God, going through suffering? Have I not done your will? Mostly? Sometimes? Kind of? Have I at least not tried, God, to do what I was supposed to do? Have I not, have I not tried to do this? God, don't you owe me something for all that I've done for you? We would never say it that way, but functionally, that's what we live and what we believe. God, don't you owe me something for what I've done for you? Isn't the fact that I said I believed and I became a Christian, isn't that good enough for you, God? Why does my faith or why does my life look like this? This is how Satan works works he takes the truth turns it into an accusation and he knows if he can get Jesus to turn these rocks to bread then he can get Jesus to affirm one of two things and Satan's fine with either one of them either that Jesus is not the son of God i.e. God was never going to provide for him or the father is a bad father and cannot be trusted Jesus' response is the quote from the book of Deuteronomy that says, Man does not live on bread alone. Now, I don't know about you. I've always taken that quote as a bit of a as a bit of like a reassuring type thing, and a bit of maybe like a gotcha back to somebody whenever whenever they, they, they say something, right? I've I've heard it quoted my whole life, but I don't think I've ever seen it like I like like I do today. Um, let's just read this in full. The verse that, that, that Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, and He humbled you and He let you hunger and, and He let you hunger and fed you with manna. So this is talking to this is Moses talking to the people of Israel, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man, that reference is spot on. This is talking about Israel in the desert. This is Jesus in the desert. The reference is spot on. But the verse gets quoted as this gotcha or really like a reassuring verse not to worry whenever things don't go well for you. Like whenever the paycheck isn't quite enough at the end of the month, then we say this to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Man doesn't live by a good paycheck alone. Man lives by the, the, the Word of God. Like, yes, I'm going to be spiritual, and I'm, that, that's how I'm going, to, I'm going to take this. And it kind of becomes this, this like happy, chipper type thing. But listen, the fact that Jesus quotes this should get all of our attention because there's nothing happy or chipper about this. This is not a buck-up, all-is-not-lost Verse. Do you know what this verse is saying when Jesus quotes this? Do you know why he is using this verse? It says that Jesus desperately hungry, likely literally on the verge of multiple massive health problems due to the fast and the length of the fast, desperately needing food, suffering and going through hunger pains and needing the food for the suffering and the hunger pains to relent, he doesn't say, it's okay, the Father will provide for me, implying He's not going to make the bread because if He just hangs on long enough, the Father's going to relieve the suffering and all will be well. He just needs to wait it out. What He says is, there's more important things than food. Implication? Even if the food never shows up, I will maintain my trust in God because of who He is. Even if I don't get the food, even if I don't get the bread... I'm going to continue trusting God. He's not, he doesn't say, no, Satan, I'm not going to turn this to bread because I'm pretty sure right around the corner, God's got some bread for me. He doesn't say that. He says, bread or no bread, I'm going to trust God in this. Why does he say this? Because suffering changes nothing. Now, this is a hard word this morning. I take no joy in preaching this. Trust me. I, I don't want to be able to say there's, but there's no promise that says, I know God is good because the suffering is ended. It says, I trust God because I know that there is more to life than this suffering, no matter how far away the end of the suffering might be. That is not an easy word. I want to say it will all be okay soon enough. And most times, lots of times, that will be true. But not always. I want to say trust God and he'll take care of it. Relief is just around the corner, and it may be. But instead, if I'm going to follow Jesus' method for resisting temptation here, my response is my suffering doesn't change who God is. It's not about the bread. It was never about the bread. It's about what Satan is trying to get Jesus to say about God. Which is that God can't be trusted. He's not worthy of our trust. It's not about breaking rules. Sin isn't primarily about breaking rules. I don't care what you've been told or what church you grew up in. Sin is not primarily about breaking rules. It's about where we place our trust. For the sake of time, let's move on to this second round of temptation. Let's go to the second round here. Jesus takes round one. He, 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 he kind of parries back Satan's temptation. So Satan ups the ante a little bit. Verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will if you then will worship me and all will be yours. So he ups the ante. He doesn't offer bread. He offers the entire world. He says, Jesus, you can have it. And I'll I'll be honest, I believe Satan here. Again, this is like a debate. This is kind of a, a very, very minor point. Um. I don't know if it's fully his to give. I think it might be. And I, I don't, I mean, he's obviously the father of lies and he can't be trusted, but there's no indication from Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, you're lying, you don't have the authority to do that. That's not going to be his response. That's not what he says. I think, I think this is a genuine offer from Satan. I think Satan would gladly trade the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of God. I think he would gladly give those up. But no, this is not just a, a, a play for power here. This is not just trying to offer Jesus power, saying, if you'll come and get this, I'll give this to you now. The, the, this was a play to give Jesus a way out. Because if Jesus has all the power in this world, he has nothing to fear from those who would oppose him. We're, we're going to see just in the, by the end of this chapter, he's already facing opposition. He already knows what is ahead of him. He knows the pain. He knows the suffering. He knows he is the Lamb of God. Take Satan's offer and he's safe. It is quite literally the path of least resistance. The shortcut to all that, at least as Satan has framed it, been promised by the Father. Satan is saying, you can have everything that's been promised to you. You just don't have to go through all that stuff. You can be safe. You can be comfortable. You can be free of opposition. You can be free of of suffering and pain. And you get all of this stuff, and you don't have to go through the cross. At least that's Satan's lie and the promise. So how does Satan? Jesus respond. Jesus answered him. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Let's read that from Deuteronomy again, going back to the book of Deuteronomy. Let's go back here, and I think we, we go back to the Deuteronomy go back to the book of Deuteronomy multiple times here because, because this is addressing what they are going through and what they have gone through in the desert. And so Jesus is just playing off of that motif here. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. That doesn't sound like what Satan just promised uh, or offered. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. A little more context, and suddenly the kingdoms of this world don't look quite as enticing as, and, and, and don't really look quite as much like the path of least resistance anymore. No longer is it a path to joy and power, but sure, pain and loss. And so the choice that gets put before them here is to, 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 to give up uh, to, to give up the short-term gain and in order to pursue what seems to be a, a, a loss. It is, it is essentially saying dying to ourselves and worshiping God, not pursuing the, 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 the lesser gods around, but instead worshiping God. That is the only pathway forward where we truly find joy because there are repercussions on the other side. Two times now, say, Jesus has been tempted to avoid suffering. He has been given a path away and out of suffering. Two times, he resists the temptation. But neither time does he dismiss the reality of this suffering or assume that the removal of suffering will vindicate God in this position. Neither time does he, he frame it that way, saying "If once the suffering goes away, you'll see how good God is. And that it would somehow make him more worthy of praise. The praise, the worship, the faithfulness, they are all warranted even if we don't get the life of comfort and ease. The response from Jesus is never, I'm not worried because God will give me this. It's never, I'm not concerned here because I know God will come through and give me this. That's never what happens. Both times. It's, I won't give in because God is who God is. And that means he's worth more than anything else. He is trustworthy and he is praiseworthy. And Jesus says, that is why I'm not going to give in to this temptation. Finally, the third temptation. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on the other hand, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now here, the immediate, immediate application isn't quite as obvious, but it's still there. And we'll, we'll get there. and We'll see it here in just a second. We're not We're told that we shouldn't put God to the test, but we're not told why we shouldn't put God to the test. It just says don't put God to the test. And this isn't immediately obvious to me because this seems a little bit uh, backward. After all, what is the best way for me to prove that I really trust the parachute? It's probably going to be to jump out of a plane. That's the best way for me to prove, no, I really trust that this parachute is going to do the job. So if that's the case, wouldn't the same apply to God? The best way to prove that I trust God is to indeed put him to the test, to see if God shows up whenever I step out and do something. But instead, paradoxically, that would actually show that you do not trust God if you do it in the way that Satan has Uh, has laid out here. Because basically what is happening is, if if you are putting yourself in a place to, to say, show me you really love me, or if you really love me, you'll come through for me in this place. What we're really demanding is that God show up on our own terms, meet our demands, so that we can reach our goals. And we're saying, if you'll do that, God, then I'll know that you're really God, I'll know you're really true. I'll know that I can really trust you. But that isn't trust. That's actually a lack of trust. It's saying, God, I want you to do this for me. And if you do this for me, then I'll know you're really there. But true trust is not that God would show up on our terms for our agenda, but instead that we would show up on his terms for his agenda. And this is what the beginning of that psalm that Satan quoted teaches us. You go to Psalm 91, verse 1, and it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Our trust is not, our trust in our Heavenly Father is, is not best shown by demanding that God remove potential or actual suffering in our midst but that we place our trust in him without regard of those circumstances our faith our rest all of it rooted in Christ and because of that we have a refuge and a fortress now understand, this is not saying you're just going to have to suffer, deal with it, and you just got to trust abs- kind of abstractly that God is really good. That is not what Jesus is saying here. For so many, that is the message in the midst of suffering is you just got to endure it. And I'll tell you right now, for those that don't have God, that are not Christians, that do not believe in a heavenly Father that is there for them, that is the only message that you get in suffering. You just got to endure. And the only, the only purpose that we have here on earth, if you boil it down to it, is to avoid that suffering. All of life is about avoiding suffering at that point. Because there's no point in it. It doesn't do us any good. All it does is rob us of things. It gives us Nothing. And so apart from the, the knowing the Son and apart from trusting the Father, all suffering is is just a matter of enduring and getting through it. And I can't think of things, I, I, can't, I can't hardly think of anything that would be more hopeless than that message. But listen, what Jesus is saying is not endure suffering because you just need to endure suffering and then abstractly believe that God really is good. You're just not going to know it on this side of heaven. That is not what he is saying. What he is saying is God is good. God can be trusted. God is worthy. And you can find a refuge in him in the midst of that suffering. And it's in this little paradigm shift that temptation begins to take a whole new light. That sin is seen for what it is. It's not about keeping a list and hopping through hoops in order to to, to get a reward for good behavior. It's about overcoming temptation on the basis of the nature and the goodness of God. It's about weighing our choices not on should I or shouldn't I, but what does this say about God if I do this, if I say this, if I think this. So when I blow up on my kids and I, I, I sin against them in anger, the practical tip of counting to ten may be fine in the moment. But what I, what, what, what I need is not a strategy to bite my lip when the anger rises. What I need is something that keeps the anger subsided because, because the level of anger that I produce is rooted fundamentally in how I view my children. Do you understand what I'm saying? If I view my children as little monsters to control, I got one choice, to be a big monster in control, right? That's the only choice I got. The only way to fix this problem is not to say, all right, I've got to count to 10 before I lose my mind. I've got to figure out how do I fundamentally view them in a different light. In your marriage, if your wife is an impossible impossibly difficult maze of emotions and buttons and switches that you can't quite seem to navigate because the last time you hit this button all was well but this time you hit this button and she lost her mind and you're like I don't know I thought uh. and you can't figure this out and you inevitably find yourself in this next fire, this next moment saying how did we get here you find yourself thinking if only I had zigged when I should have zagged and you turn your marriage into like this video game if you can just figure out like, like Mario Brothers right if you can just figure Figure out if I can jump here, if I can do this, if I can get this here. I just need the star right here so that I can get through this because that's my only choice. Like, like if, if you turn it into that and you're just like on boss level, then the, 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 the fundamental, none of, you're eventually going to run out of strategies. The fundamental way to make sure you don't sin against your wife or your husband is, is, is not that you find the right strategy, strategy it's in how you view them. Are they co-laborers, partners? Are they someone worthy of your love, of your care, of your respect? If you can get there, that's going to change how you talk to them. It's going to change how you how you interact with them. Are they a problem to be solved, or, or, or are they someone to be cared for? Do you see how fundamentally, if you change you change all of it from rules to be followed to relationships to be nurtured? It changes. It all changes. The key to not sinning, the way to never sin again is to at all times perfectly view God for who he is and worship him in a way that, that is worthy of who he is. Any sin is a failure to play this out correctly. Any sin. And so do you see the difference in how this works? This then becomes about the nature of God and not a list of rules. Not a list of things. If I can just keep the rules, I can get the reward. This is the lie that Satan wants you to believe. That Christianity is a list of rules and that suffering and struggle are to be avoided at all costs. If he can convince you of that, then you've already lost your battle against sin. It's just a matter of figuring out where it's going to express itself. Because battling sin isn't about making better choices. It's about fundamentally viewing things in a new way. Because keeping rules presumes a reward at the end of the list. If not, why keep the rules? What's the point? What does it matter if you check off your list at the end of the day, if at the end of the day your life is still a train wreck? It doesn't matter anymore. What's the point in keeping the rules? This is why suffering is so disoriented, disorienting. In our hearts, we feel like it shouldn't be, like, like suffering shouldn't be there because fundamentally we don't think we deserve it. Now, don't get me wrong, we can articulate all the theological things. We just sang about how I'm a sinner, if it's not one thing, it's another. How our sins, are they are many, our mercy is more. We can theologically articulate these things, and we know them to be true. But fundamentally in our lives, what we believe is, I kept the rules, this shouldn't be happening. And suffering then becomes this thing that's like, God, are you real? It's falling right into this trap that Satan is putting out there. God, are you really good because I'm going through this? The reality is that if you take suffering in this life as a given if you take suffering in this life as a given this is every one of us and this is hard for us Americans because we've been told our whole lives that you don't have to suffer we've been told our whole lives that you can have you, you, you can you can have it you, you just got to try hard enough You just got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You just got to work hard enough. You just got to do things. And if you can just do enough, the suffering can be avoided. We've been told as Christians that if we just do the right things, if we just just do the right things, then the the suffering can be avoided. And we'll be be rewarded with great things on the backside of that. We've been told all those things. So, So maybe you're not there yet. That suffering is a given in this life. Maybe you're not there yet. I, I, could, I could quote half a dozen verses where, where Jesus and Paul say, You're going to suffer. So I can give you the biblical evidence, or you can just live a while. And eventually, we'll all be convinced that this is true. Suffering is a given. And if it's a given, then what's most important is not the list of rules, but the one that becomes the refuge in the midst of suffering. And if you avoid falling into temptation, if you avoid committing those sins, it's not because you were able to make better choices this time, but because you knew who God was. And you trusted Him in the midst of it. It's not about eating the rolls. It's about knowing God. Building that relationship. Trusting in Him in that. Why was Jesus so so ready with these answers and so quickly to to, to be able to, to parry what Satan has done? Why was he so so quick to be able to do that? Because he knows the Father. So what's our problem? Why is it, why is it that if it's not one thing, it's another? Why is it that our sins, they are many, and, and we need his mercy to be more? Why is that for us the problem? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that, now we know in part, but then we will know in full. So, how do you keep from sinning? I'm not kidding. Whenever I say I know the secret to keep from sinning, I, I do. The, the problem is we can't get there just yet. The best we got we we see we see through a, a, a glass dimly. We we can't we can't make out all the features of the Father completely. Now, it's been revealed to us that the issue is what makes the mirror dirty is not him, but us. And so we can't see him clearly. And when, the, when push comes to shove, when the moment is there, we, we, we say, you know what? You, you're right. I don't deserve this. Or I think that, that, that this is what I should do and this is what it should look like. And so one day we will know the Father. We will see him face to face. And our sins will be no more. And we long for that day. But until that day is here, our task is to know the Father more and more, to know His heart more and more, to be able to read the Scriptures and say, Oh, now I see who God is. Now I see what He does. He doesn't give rules for us to follow so that we can make Him like us more. He lays these things out here and he says, do these things because it shows, it, it, it shows me what you know about me. And it places you in a place where you can fully, you, you, can, you, you can take in who I am and apply that in life. Man, I wish I could stand up here and tell you that everything's going to be okay. I can't, but I can stand up here and tell you that what Jesus says is, Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. And he will be with us. Our task is to know Him and to trust Him. So this morning, I don't know where that leaves you. Perhaps you sin because you don't know Jesus at all. You don't know the Father at all. And what you need is to know Him. And that begins by confessing those sins and saying, Man, I have put myself in this place where I trust myself. And perhaps for some of you, you do know the Father. And your challenge is to know Him better. That's what church is for. That we would do this together. And we would know Him better together in community. I don't know what your response is to this message. Practically, what it looks like to play this out. But I know that the ultimate goal is that you would know the Father more. And this is what we gather together to do. Every week, at chili cook offs in each other's homes, in our discipleship groups. That's the key. And until that day comes and we say, Lord, come quickly, we keep pressing on together. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession this morning that we bring nothing to the table here in a way that would cause you to to be our refuge. That the the fact that you are our refuge in times of trouble is not like just a given that you have placed out there before us. It is an act of mercy and grace. And so it is our confession, even as people who know the, the quote unquote secret to not sinning, it is our confession that we are sinners. And our sins, there are many. But we worship you because we truly know from your word where you have revealed yourself that your mercy is more. And so, Father, I pray that you would show us what it looks like for us to know you more. Whether that be finding places of community, whether that be finding places of repentance, whether that be the first step of giving our lives over to you and saying, I need to know you more. Father, help me here that we would be faithful and that we would be obedient to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.